This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Members of the Honolulu City Council got their first chance to grill Hart's CEO and Mayor Caldwell's administration about the deep divide over the rail project's public-private partnership. Mayor Kirk Caldwell dropped a bombshell two weeks ago when he told the Federal Transit Authority the city could not go forward with the memorandum of understanding. The Hart Board has yet to formally terminate the process. Hart CEO Andy Robbins told the council he still believes the P3 contract is the best option for building the project, even though news reports indicate bids may be above what has been budgeted. Robbins is limited by what he can divulge because of procurement law. An official announcement has been delayed and may not come until later in the year. We launched the procurement process more than a year and a half ago, and I can assure you that the teams from both Hart and the city worked extremely hard together on all of the aspects of the P3 procurement. It's a challenging project. It's a mega project in itself, and a lot of interaction in terms of the discussions that are allowed under the Hawaii Procurement Code. One thing I know for sure, you know, when we say no more delays, if we get into a re-procurement, then we're building in a definite delay. So before we go there, uh, I want to make sure that we have exhausted every opportunity to find a way, see if there's a way to get the P3 to a successful conclusion. I don't believe it's been allowed to play out. And following that five-hour council session, Mayor Caldwell talked with us about what led to the decision to pull out of the triple P deal. The P3 bids were to be submitted and were submitted on July, the end of July. At our insistence, by the way, he wanted more time. And they were to be awarded at the end of August with a notice to proceed in November. At the end of August, there was no award. And I don't even know what all the reasons are that there was no award, except that obviously it didn't come in, in the in, under the terms and conditions that were hoped for. And our chief procurement officer, along with the evaluation committee, made the recommendation to me that we could no longer proceed in this triple P given what the bids were. And then I wanted to immediately notify the FTA, the Federal Transit Administration, because they've made it abundantly clear now for a couple of years since we started down this P3 path that should there be anything that jeopardizes this path, they want to know immediately. And I wanted to tell them back at the end of August, but was told by the CEO of Hart that I could not do so because of this memorandum of understanding that we had signed that prohibited me from talking to anyone, even just telling them we weren't going to be involved anymore. So we had to cancel the memorandum of understanding, and he, he said you need 30 days in order to do so. And that 30th day ran on September 25th, which was the day that I told the FTA, the council, and then the public as to what happened. I'd like to tell the public what I don't even know, but our procurement officers know, Andy knows, and our, and our evaluation committee knows, that somehow this triple P did not turn out the way everyone hoped it would. And I'm still hopeful that that will come out shortly. Andy needs to make a decision as to whether he's going to continue to negotiate with the bidders under the P3. He said he was in the media. Today, he said he was not negotiating in secret in response to my statements, which means he's not negotiating at all, which is troubling because if we're just sitting there doing nothing, that jeopardizes the future of this project. And we need to get off of this P3 and get back to the FTA with an alternative way forward of which I think the more traditional design build model is the appropriate way to go in a phased manner because of the challenges, because of the pandemic and just increasing costs and funding shortfalls. When you let the FTA know, what was their response? They weren't surprised because they had ex expressed skepticism about our triple P because it wasn't a pure triple P. It was 
one where three-fourths of the project was either constructed or under construction, where there was a 13-year operation and maintenance agreement already, and where financing was somewhat in place. Usually, the triple Ps are ones that are brand new, where nothing has been built, where there's no operating agreement in place, and where financing is a big component because that's where they get a lot of their, their funds from, their profits from. And so they expressed skepticism but said, it's your choice, but if there's any problems, we want to know and we want to know immediately. And that's why I told them as soon as I possibly could without breaching the conditions of the agreement between Hart and the city under this MOU. And so they were appreciative of that, but they were also disturbed by the fact that here it is, after much delay, three years of delay, we don't have a contract in hand that we can show them so that they can release the rest of the funding that you know they've committed to the project, which is approximately 744 million is remaining. And um, they said, you know, we could start seeing funds if we had a contract in hand. We have no contract in hand, and I don't know how we could deliver a contract based on the bids that were received according to the recommendations by our chief procurement officer and evaluation committee. They did not want to go forward. And therefore, we need to figure out another way to get a contract in hand. Okay, so you yourself don't know the specific details, but based on what your people are telling you, you can't in good conscience continue along this path. That's their advice to me, the ones that are front and center involved with this bidding process. And I'm going to listen to those folks because there are, there are our city employees and they're advising me as the mayor of the city on how to proceed. And they say you cannot proceed given how the bids came in. And they told me they cannot tell me more until the chief procurement officer for the HART, which is the CEO of HART, says they're no longer an active procurement. Once they say that, I can tell the FTA what these bids are. I mean, I'll find out, and then I can tell the FTA, and I can tell you, Catherine. And I think once that information gets out, I would assume the majority of the people of this island would understand why we can't go forward. Because I think the guys on this... The, the chief procurement officer and the advisor, the evaluation committee are reasonable, hardworking people that understand the problems, and I think the rest of us will, too. I imagine nobody wants to throw a monkey wrench into the process. You want it to be above board and make sure that you can withstand any challenge, any future challenge. So you want to make sure you do it right. No, that's exactly right, Catherine. I have to say this decision and announcement that we're pulling out of the, the triple P was not a decision I wanted to make. You know, I've fought for eight years. I'm in my last three years of my three months of my term. And rail is something that's near and dear and passionately supported by our administration every step of the way. And it's been a hard slog every step of the way and want to keep going. But when you see the outcome, you know, the way it is and see no way to proceed under the triple P, then we have to make the hard decision on recalibrating. It doesn't mean you give up on the goal, but there has to be a different way to that goal. And that's what I'm hoping the, exec- the CEO of Hart will see and come on board to work in a different way towards the goal of building the last 4.16 miles and eight stations of the system. We've heard a lot about the uh, utility relocation in that final stretch. Is there anything you want to say about, about that, about the relocation and the issues with the variances? I think what they're asking for is a 100% design plan. It's what they ask for from everybody on the island of Oahu who go into our city streets. You know, including the environmental services, they have to design to 100% when they go into our city streets to rebuild our sewer system. The Board of Water Supply has to do 100% designs when they go into our city streets to rebuild a water main. 
And any private company who wants to go into our street to lay any kind of utility, whether it be gas, whether it be um, telecom, those kind of things, they have to design to 100%. And Hart has not submitted any designs to 100% since the utility relocation began over two years ago, despite our repeated requests that they provide such drawings. And quite frankly, Catherine, I don't know why they can't do that when everyone else can, including Lori. And it's part of the problem with Hart all along. From day one, Hart starts doing constructions, construction without a 100% design plan. And as they go forward, they get surprised by things because they haven't designed to 100%. And when they find surprises, it's called a change order, and then it costs more money. We want to avoid that pattern of repeating itself over and over and over. And so the request of 100% design plans is a reasonable one, one that everyone else meets, both government and the private sector, and they haven't been able to provide one plan for one inch, let alone one foot or one yard of any utility relocation for over two years. And I don't even know what, how you could answer why you couldn't do that. So without the, you can't grant those variances, because we're talking like 42-inch mains, right? We're talking big big pipes. Yeah. It, 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 we're talking very large water mains and sometimes very large sewer infrastructure, and they need plans designed to 100% to show how they're going to relocate these, where the trenching is going to go, how they're going to lay it down, what's on top of what, because you have sewer and water and you, there's protocols on what goes where, and you always want sewer below water, not sewer above water in case there's a sewer main break, a, a sewer, yeah, sewer main break, force main break. And so these things are reasonable, provided in every other case, and Hart needs to do the same, and they should have in over two years been able to do this. And by the way, they've been promising it to me as mayor for at least a year. Mayor, next month. Mayor, next week. Mayor, it's right around the corner. They've promised so many times they've stopped promising now because it hasn't been forthcoming. I think I heard one of your directors talk about the need for those plans because they said that if there's a, an issue and a problem, it could impact water to Waikiki or downtown. The water main is a major water main that supplies water to the urban core, extremely important. And it has to be made sure that whatever is done, that it's protected and done in a way where it's not going to damage the system or more importantly, put something over the system that if you had to do a repair, you couldn't get at it very easily. And that's why we need a 100% design plan. I would tell the public that just like them, I want to know what the triple P bids came in at. I think they have a right to know. I think I have a right to know. And I think when those bids are made public, they'll understand why it was difficult, if not impossible, to proceed under the procurement code and under the, how the bids came in. As, as far as utility relocation, I think just like everyone else in life, you have to have your plans and they have to be fully developed before you proceed, and particularly when you're talking about spending hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars to get this thing done right. With utilities that have been in, this, in these roadways for a long time, and once rail is built, will be difficult to get at because of what's on top of these utilities. That's an elevated rail system. Was there anything you heard Andy Robbins tell the council that stuck with you? Well, I heard him say that, in, you know, when I talked about he's negotiating in secret because he said he was proceeding with their procurement, and to proceed with their procurement, that means you're negotiating with the bidders. He said he's not negotiating in secret. So my question, well, I was surprised, is what has he been doing for the past couple of weeks if he's not negotiating in secret? What is he doing to move this project forward? At the end of the day, we need to move this project forward. 
the FDA demands that we do so, and he needs to come over and start to work with us on a plan B. And critics are using this opportunity to call for ending the line on, at Middle Street or in Chinatown. What do you say to that? I'd say this is nothing new. I've, I've read the statements by these critics. They're the same ones who opposed the project from the very beginning out in Kapolei. I understand some folks just don't like this rail project. Some don't like how it looks. Some don't believe it's going to work. And I think it's critical that this project be completed all the way to Alamoana where you're going to get the greatest ridership from Middle Street to Alamoana. And it has to be an elevated system that is fast and reliable, not something that ends early where you have to get on a bus to get on the train to get off the train to get on a bus. You know, severely impact ridership. We need to stay the course and find a way. And we're not talking about a project that's relevant just for today, but for 100 years from now, 30 years from now, people will look back just like on the H3 and, and forget all the controversy and just be grateful that it's built. I would think that stopping at Middle Street will have a, a dramatic negative impact on the project because one, ridership will be a lot less and it doesn't get to where people need to go, which is Alamona Shopping Center, not to shop, but to get to major employment centers like Waikiki. And Alamona Shopping Center, believe it or not, is, our, is the largest bus transit center in the state of Hawaii. Thousands so- upon the thousands of rides get off and get on there in a bus system that's all around and through that through the center and it's stopping there short term the minimal operating segment to get people from the west side closer to Waikiki to go to work and more folks to get closer to the University of Hawaii Manoa 30,000 of them to go to school which is why it ends there the minimum operating segment the the locally preferred alternative which instead of being 20 miles is 26 miles goes from downtown Kapolei to UH Manoa to get people closer to where they need to go and we need to stay that course if the system is going to be viable and successful. And the option of Chinatown? Stopping at Chinatown, there's not going to be a major bus transit center in Chinatown because there's not enough space for the type of transit center that you see at Alamoana, where it's all through Kona Street and all around the shopping center. There's not that alternative in Chinatown. Short blocks, no, totally built out, very narrow sidewalks. It doesn't work in terms of getting people from there the rest of the way. And secondly... As I said, to get there, you need to get on a bus, get on rail, get off the rail, get on a train, on a bus. is very inconvenient and unattractive for people who are trying to incentivize the ride, the train, all the way to work. The city has made its position clear to everybody, starting with the FTA. And I think the CEO of Hart needs to show how he's going to do this without negotiating in secret and still negotiate. And if he can't do that, and I don't know how he can proceed in a procurement where the city has pulled out of, and it's the major portion of the procurement process. And he has to follow the procurement code that he needs to recognize at this point that he has to work with the city on a plan B and move expeditiously, openly, and transparency with all the stakeholders. That was Honolulu Mayor Kirk Caldwell explaining why he felt the city had to pull out of the public-private partnership on the rail project. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Parker School in Waimea on Hawaii Island.
committed to knowing, valuing, and nurturing each student. Applications and virtual visits now available at parkerschoolhawaii.org. Kamala Harris says Americans have been lied to. The case against Donald Trump and Mike Pence is open and shut. The vice president is eager to dispute that. My message to the Democrat candidate for vice president, congratulations. I'll see you in Salt Lake City. Join us Wednesday night for NPR's special live coverage of the 2020 vice presidential debate from NPR News. Beginning Wednesday afternoon at 3 here on HBR One. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the 15th Annual Hawaii Book and Music Festival, celebrating story and song virtually with Zoom events on now through November 4th. Schedule at hawaiibookandmusicfestival.com. This is The Conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Time now for your Backyard Quiz. Today we jump into Hawaii's art world and are looking at a particular artist. His works are shown nationally at museums, including the Metropolitan Museum of Art, the Whitney Museum of American Art, and the Art Institute of Chicago. Locally, you can find his signed works in the permanent collections at the Honolulu Museum of Art and the Hawaii State Art Museum. A native of California, this painter moved to the islands in 1936 to teach art at the Kamehameha School for Boys in Honolulu. About a year later, our mystery artist was invited to teach at the University of Hawaii. Life in paradise was not all smooth sailing. After the bombing of Pearl Harbor, Hawaii was put under martial law and the university closed. The next few years were unorthodox. Unable to teach, he helped create backdrops for Dole pineapple ads. He painted Pearl Harbor airfields for Life magazine during World War II and also ran two fingerprinting stations this was due to the fact that all of the population had to be fingerprinted. When classes resumed after the war, this American modernist went on to become the chairman of the University of Hawaii Art Department. For today's quiz, can you name this artistic academic? Call 941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Locations, whose Realtors and staff support HPR's commitment to sharing stories of Hawaii. Updated property listings, including virtual tours and a mobile app, at locationshawaii.com. Farmers Union United marks its 10th year in the islands. It has 13 chapters across the state. It will mark the event with a convention next month celebrating Hawaii's agriculture. 
The pandemic is forcing the event to go virtual, but the economic crisis has put more emphasis on growing local and supporting our farmers in the quest to become more self-sufficient and to diversify our crops. Here's Maui Regenerative Farmer and Union President Vincent Minna. Just to give a 30,000-foot view, the farmers share the dollars around $0.09. Cents. And uh, this is out of the National Farmers Union's uh, statistics. Here locally, our budget, our state budget for agriculture is 0.4%, less than one-half of 1%. And what also goes under that budget is weights and measures, the gas stations. And so, you know, agriculture really isn't given the, the level of uh, respect that it needs especially when we consider this being paradise on earth. So, um, and an, another aspect of that is um, our, our system here does not see agriculture as a whole system that supports the islands because we rely heavily on a lot of imports. And uh, so this pandemic has really raised a lot of awareness and a, a lot of attention around our agricultural systems but not much in the way of having um, sit-downs with existing farmers, ranchers, and fishers to really discuss what would it look like if we were to have an agricultural system in place that would support the production of food at the level that we could be consistent and we could be supportive of a local economy that that money stays within the economy uh, and multiplies within the economy. So um, there's a number of things that make that up, and one of the things is uh, having a resilient system, a system that a farmer can know that his soils will be in, in good shape, that he can go back in and plant again and not have the disease pressure and the pest pressure that comes with soils that have been overused. And the same thing goes for the ranchers, you know, wanting to be able to graze in pastures that are given a time to recharge and, um, and, and not uh, debilitate the pastures' ability to support animals on that land. And then, of course, the fishers have a kapu system in place in a sense. You know, it's where their areas aren't overfished and they get to recharge. You folks will be addressing some of these issues at the upcoming conference? Yes, Absolutely. Um, we, you know, our, our organization, um, our mission is to uh, create and advocate for local food systems, uh, vibrant and prosperous agricultural communities through education, legislation, and cooperation. And, um, and so with that comes this whole focus in on recycling of nutrients back onto the land, the regenerative nature of of soils, the importance of that regenerative nature of soils. And then also to look at our own gut microbiome of our bodies to see how best our food can support our well-being in having a healthy microbiome within our body and then having a healthy microbiology in the soil. So we have some experts lined up that are world-renowned. I mean, thankfully, to bring these folks in, what it would cost to pay to bring them in and, and all that is cost prohibitive. So thankfully, we're able to do this all virtually and bring these people together and then hold this space where anybody in the world could be able to log on and, and uh, be part of it. Now, within our organization, we have a Maui County grant 
We're a statewide organization. Actually, we're a chapter of the National Farmers Union, a chartered chapter of the National Farmers Union. And within our four chapters here in Maui County, we were able to get funding to put together a farm apprentice mentoring program. So we're able to apprentice young people in our wonderful program that really gives them a whole comprehensive outlook on what it takes to be a farmer. And since uh, Mahi Pono has bought the land uh, from HCNS, they're offering community farm lands at a very inexpensive rate, uh, $150 an acre per year for two-acre plots. So literally, our apprentices can get on two acres and create a niche market a crop uh, to make a living at farming um, with utilizing those resources. What are you seeing out there? Is there anything that, that you're kind of excited about? I say to people, you know, with all the CARES Act money and everything coming down and to help support farmers, and, and that's wonderful that, you know, we can pivot away from the hotels and restaurants and be able to um, uh, service the local economy. My monopoly is that you know, farmers aren't looking for a free lunch. We produce it. And yet at the same time, our consistency relies on our rhythm of our ability to be able to plant and, and plan ahead for our crops to be harvested and marketed and then have the new crops in and to create that rhythm in a way that we're able to pay attention to the finer details associated with keeping a resilient and proactive system of, of growing food. So what I'm excited about is the attention that's been paid to local agriculture and having a critical look at systems and what we need. You know, the biggest enemy of the farmer is time and temperature. And so it also could be the biggest ally if we just pay attention to the ability to aggregate the food, to the ability to ship it where it's needed. I have a farmer a president in our Kau chapter. He said that he can grow broccoli year-round. Well, there's no place else in Hawaii that uh, I'm hearing people being able to do that. So each island, each chapter that we have represents a region of agriculture. We have 13 chapters. And those regions are unique in their own special way. As you know, here in Hawaii, our microclimates and such are very unique from one area to another. And so we like to focus in on those unique features that that region represents so we can then do our best to produce the food that will grow there and then be able to share it around the state so people throughout the state can have an ability to access these foods. So within our organization, we have several food hubs, one in Waianae, one in uh, Kona, and we are you know, actively involved in developing those. That's a, that's a, a statewide initiative to develop those hubs and to be able to get food out to the people here locally. Is there any other crop, though, uh, beside the broccoli that, you know, that you're jazzed about? about its prospects? Oh, yeah, all the crops. I mean, Hawaii can grow such a diversity of food here. We have the ability to, to truly be the breadbasket uh, in, in, in that respect. Uh, not only can it grow a diversity of food, but an abundance of food and a uh, vitality. It just needs, see, the, the soils have been depleted for a very long time with sugarcane and pineapple. When you're monocropping in the soil, you're asking for trouble especially when you're using petrochemical inputs because there's no, there's no focus on returning the biology uh, to the soil. And the importance of the biology is, is that it makes the minerals available to the plant roots to take up. And picture this, Catherine. You know, if, 
if you're a fungal root in the soil, you're thinner, you're smaller than a plant root. Now, elements, mineral elements, are magnetized onto the, uh, a colloid of soil on a soil particle. They're, they're magnetized to that soil particle. Now, they, they're stacked like pages of a book on top of each other. And when these fungal roots go out, they, they go out and they pull off. They get in between these pages, in a sense, these colloids. They get in between and they pull off the minerals off of those colloids, and they bring it back to the plant roots. Well, the plant roots are, are stationary. You know, the plants are stationary. They send their roots into the ground, but pretty much, you know, right around the root system there is where they're exuding through, through photosynthesis. When the sunlight is in relationship to the plant, those, that, that relationship sends down proteins and sugars through the plant roots, and it exudes those proteins and sugars into the soil. Well, that's what the fungal roots need to survive is those proteins and sugars. So they go to the plant roots here. You know, we're going to give you the minerals you need, and the plant roots go great. We'll give you the ice cream and cookies you want, you know, with the proteins and sugars. So there's a symbiosis that happens in the soil that's vital to a uh, healthy soil system. And we've lost touch with the importance of making sure that that living component of the soil is there and cared for. It's called the rhizosphere. It's the seven, top seven inches of the soil where all aerobic bacteria live, all a bacteria that is air, um, oxygen-loving bacteria. And uh, that rhizosphere, when that's managed properly, plants will do their best. And when plants do their best, they're expressing themselves as a complete protein. And when they express themselves as a complete protein, bugs can't eat them because bugs have only evolved to eat incomplete protein. So this is the magic of a healthy soil system. It begins with, with good aina. That's right. Aloha aina, malama aina. I mean, the Hawaiians are all about it. Aloha aina being, you know, love the land which feeds. It's a beautiful thing. Is there any anything new on the horizon with hemp? Because that was, you know, we've had the pilot projects and, and uh, you know, a lot of folks were hopeful that it would spur, you know, a whole new industry. There are a number of pilot projects and licenses that have been happening here in Hawaii. I sit on the Board of Agriculture, and thankfully, the governor gave Hawaii Farmers Union a seat on the board. And I sit with the Farm Bureau. There's another board member, Brandy Cabral, the president of the Farm Bureau, and then the dean of CTAR and CLNR. Mm-hmm. And, and so it's, it's a wonderful uh, group of people. And we just addressed the hemp rules this past board meeting. And unfortunately, what's happening is the overregulation of farmers especially the hemp industry, we're like more than two years behind the mainland right now when Hawaii could be producing up to three crops of hemp a year. It's really a sad commentary, and there's so much regulation, and, you know, we're basically bobbing and weaving. You know, there was was a hemp bill that passed, but we may see a lot of the existing hemp farmers not being able to exist within the rules there. Regulation, then, is the barrier from getting that going faster? Yeah, like, for instance, 500-foot buffer zone. Personally, I would like to to grow hemp. I would like to have a niche business with hemp. But I would have to be on so much land that the growing of hemp is 500 feet, which is almost two football fields long, away from any existing house. The buffer zones for restricted-use pesticides is 100 feet. So here's a crop 
that could truly be a savior for the island because it's not only a food crop with the seed, hemp seed is very nutritious, but also medicinal with the CBDs component of it. And then also as a building material with hempcrete, which is amazing because it, when you have a house built with hempcrete, you, instead of drywall, when it's cold outside, it's warm inside. When it's, when it's warm outside, it's cool inside. It regulates temperature and it's mold and mildew resistant. And it's an amazing, amazing building component of plant. And then on top of all that, I think it's like 22,000 uses. It has an ability to remediate the soil. The photo remediate the soil. In other words, the roots go down, and they can pull heavy metals out of the soil. And so it's it can help to do what we've just been talking about: heal the soil. Absolutely, absolutely. Especially when you use it in a situation where you're mob grazing animals, and you can use it as an alley crop in between. And I mean, there's a number of different creative ways that we could go about using a lot of different crops right. here. Especially, and the key is diversity. Just like us as people, yeah. When we're when we're when there's a diversity among people that work together collaboratively and cooperatively, we get stuff done. Well, it's the same thing in nature. Nature only wants to collaborate and cooperate with us. Right. We'll have a healthier landscape. Absolutely. And that was Vincent Min, ahead of the Hawaii Farmers Union United, talking about the organization's tenth anniversary. For links to the upcoming conference, head to our website, HawaiiPublicRadio.org. Support for HPR comes from Honolulu Habitat for Humanity, announcing At Home with Habitat, a week-long virtual silent auction fundraiser October 26th through November 2nd. Registration at honoluluhabitat.org events. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hi, I'm Kate Marion Child, the author of Secrets of the Oak Woodlands. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about the intimate lives of wild plants and animals. Beginning Sunday morning at 11. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from McDonald Rudy, a Honolulu law firm serving the community for nearly 30 years, offering a range of trusts and estates litigation services, including wills, trusts, and probate. Learn more at mcdonaldrudy.com. Our reality check today with Honolulu Civil Beat looks at the uh, a rental housing situation. It was tough before the pandemic, and the forecast is it could get worse. Business reporter Stuart Yurton joins us today. Good morning, Stuart. Good morning, Catherine. So tell us about this new report that's out. Right. So the report is out from the University of Hawaii Economic Research Organization, and it's the first of a monthly uh, survey uh, looking at the rental housing market. So it's a, it's a really uh, big deal, uh, especially because this can be a monthly thing where we can really see what's going on uh, with the with the rental housing uh, market here in Hawaii, and you know there are so many people out of jobs, and people are struggling to pay that big housing 
uh, bill every month. Um, but there is, you know, some federal help. Right. Well, <clears throat> what the survey found was that uh, despite whatever help we're getting from the federal government and everything else, um, people are struggling. Tenants are having a hard time. Um, again, the report goes into a lot of detail on this. Uh, about half of the tenants surveyed uh, had suffered uh, some kind of economic hardship but managed to pay their rent on time. Uh, uh, another group had suffered um, and, pay, and were paying their rent late. Uh, others, a small amount, about 6.6%, had suffered hardship and were delinquent on rent. Uh, so that's that's bad. Uh, again, uh, 10% late, uh, 6% delinquent. The, the good news is landlords generally uh, are willing to work with the tenants, the survey found, uh, either by uh, reducing rent or allowing some kind of payment plan or something like that. So that's good news. Uh, the other thing that we see is, according to the report, is that the vacancy rate has gone up uh, to about 10% from maybe 3% or th a little bit over 3% before the pandemic. So you can imagine what that could mean if we have a bunch of vacant rental properties. Yeah, and I, I know, you know, some people were using their rentals for vacation rentals because they were more lucrative, but, uh, you know, they clamped down on that, so there wasn't much of that either. Right. So, again, this didn't really look at the vacation rental market. This was looking at residential, uh, the residential rental market, what's going on with that. And on one hand, if you think about it, Having a 10% vacancy rate could be really good. It could mean, hey, prices are, could go down. There's the uh, supply is starting to, to increase relative to demand. Um, what, the problem is, according to the study, a lot, part of the reason for the vacancy rate is people are, are giving up their rental properties and moving it back home with family, doubling up, getting roommates, working together and in, 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 into smaller uh, places with more people. So it's not like there's a lot of demand, too. So we have uh, a greater supply, but the demand is shrinking as well. So what's the implication of all this? The, the big worry is that landlords are going to say, we, we can't make money doing, rent, doing residential rentals. And they'll sell their properties to people who want to buy them. Maybe it'll be people who want to do vacation rentals if, if that opens up again. Who knows? But there's a very big concern in this uh, report that the report raises that uh, this could actually erode our supply of rental housing, which, as you know, people really need. We need, we need, a for, we need rental housing that's you know, within reach of regular people. Right, and I know there's been a lot of criticism that we're not building enough uh, rental units uh, to increase, you know, um, uh, the stock out there. Um, but, you know, I guess and if landlords start selling, you know, there, there's no, no way of knowing if whoever buys this will, uh, buys the properties are going to keep them in rentals. 
Well, right. That's that's the big concern. So the report, again, this is the first of, of what will be a monthly report. And the authors, um, which is Philip Garbodin of UH, um, <clears throat> he basically says, look, you know, we maybe we need to start thinking about how do we, you know, what interventions can the government take into the market to help preserve this uh, rental housing stock? And it's a really good question. It's super important. And it's something we can follow uh, thanks to this monthly report. Well, it'll be interesting to see, uh, you know, what trends emerge from this. But thanks so much, Stuart. Thank you, Catherine. That was reporter Stuart Yurton with today's Reality Check. Read his story online at civilbeat.org. Earlier in the show, we asked you about an American modernist painter whose work is found in the permanent collections uh, of the Honolulu Museum of Art, the Hawaii State Art Museum, and the Isaacs Art Center in Waimea. Born in 1910, this California native moved to Hawaii in 1936 after accepting a position at the Kamehameha School for Boys in Honolulu. He was the school's first art teacher. A year later, he uh, was offered a position at the University of Hawaii where he joined the art department as an associate professor. The bombing of Pearl Harbor closed the university, but despite the difficulties of finding work through the war years, our academic artists persevered and eventually went on to chair the UH Art Department from 1945 to 1955. Instrumental in developing the contemporary curriculum by inviting internationally renowned artists like John Sherlow and Dorothea Tanning to visit and teach, Ben Norris retired in 1975. That was the name we were looking for, and though we got a number of calls, no one got it right. That's today's quiz. If you have one, send it to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, offering reconnections to the art, courtyards, and the museum community. Open Thursdays to Sundays with new evening hours. HonoluluMuseum.org. I'm Stephen Dubner on the next Freakonomics Radio. It's an activity that's both universal and eternal. We do know that board games are just about as old as civilization itself and human beings. And playing games brings us joy regardless of the outcome, right? Losers look for joy. I look for victory. How to win games and beat people. That's next time on Freakonomics Radio. This evening at 7, following Counterspin. Earlier this summer, Governor David Ige extended the orders to prevent utilities from disconnecting customers uh, who are having trouble paying their bills until the end of the year. Now, we talked to Kathleen Painui, the spokeswoman for the Honolulu Board of Water Supply, about that as more people are being laid off from their jobs. We, like other utilities, have put a moratorium on shutoffs, so no one need worry that they would lose their water for non-payment of their bills. We, you know, understand water is a, a very critical resource, especially at this time given COVID, and we don't want to uh, deny anybody, obviously, 
access to fresh and clean water for uh, safety and uh, health purposes. So we've extended our moratorium on t- through the end of the year, so uh, no water shutoffs at that point. And then we just ask people, you know, we understand right now is incredibly difficult for a lot of people. Um, you know, you know, some people don't have any jobs. Some people lost maybe one of two or three jobs that they usually work. So we just say, please call us. Um, you know, give us a holler. Call us at seven four eight five zero seven zero. That's a special line we've put up, and talk to us, and we'll work with you. You know, our goal is to get you to pay something every month or whenever it's convenient to ensure that that number doesn't get too high, you know, that it doesn't, you don't have such a high bill. And sometimes just paying, you know, five bucks a week or a couple times a month or even, you know, partial payment on your monthly bill goes a long way to not letting it get too high or out of control. So we're more than willing to work with people. We've set up on our website, We, if you go to our customer uh, care service page, on our website, we have options, you know, forms for people to review, fill out, send in if they are having trouble paying their bill. You know, fill this out, send it in, and we'll uh, give you a call and, and we'll work with you. So we very much encourage people just to don't be afraid to call us. Just please call us. And what's the traffic been like on your website since this pandemic hit? Uh, we've been averaging about 250 hits a week on that people just checking it out. And then from that, uh, then drilling down from that number, we're averaging maybe about eight or nine applications sent in for uh, payment relief. So not a very high volume of people. Most people seem to be, you know, you know, they prioritized, you know, water service is a high priority. And so many people are still, you know, paying their bills and, and water being one of them, which we greatly appreciate. We know there's a lot of financial pressures on people. So the fact that they make us a priority, we we are extraordinarily grateful for that. And we know the Board of Water Supply here on Oahu, uh, you've been working with the other counties too. The managers yeah. talk constantly, you know, and, and again, share ideas and stuff like that. One thing that I thought was interesting was that uh, the use of the care monies, uh, I know that uh, uh, people have been using that to pay their utilities, you know, their power bill. But it's a little different for the government agencies, the the water and sewer? Yeah, apparently, because we are a government agency, apparently CARES Act won't cover uh, government services, from what I understand. And I'm no expert. This is just what I've been told. So uh, CARES money is not apparently allowable to pay your water utility, but it is allowable to pay your electric bill. Right, so it's kind of a little catch-22 we were disappointed when we found that out because we thought, oh, what a great, you know, a way we can help our customers. And unfortunately, we weren't allowed to do that. What about usage during this time? We've got the hotel and the visitor industry, you know, sharply curtailed, but they're still flushing the toilets in, in, those, in those high rises because they've got to keep the pipes going. Correct. Yeah, they have to keep the pipes flushed um, to keep them, uh, you know, healthy and, and that bacteria doesn't grow in them. And that's just good best management practices for uh, building operations. We actually, I mean, we obviously saw a decrease in water usage in the commercial sector. I mean, that's no surprise there. But then conversely, you had more people staying home, so, you know, it kind of offset. So overall usage has not significantly increased at all. We're pretty much on par for 
where we were last year and on par for our five-year moving average. So we haven't seen a significant, in fact, actually the one thing that's probably impacted our usage more than uh, COVID has is the fact that we're in a drought and we're seeing an increase. And, and, you know, it's the end of summer. It's a typical pattern that we see where, you know, it gets very dry this time of year and we see an increase in water use and then it drops down as we head into winter. And that we've seen, you know, we still had a, we've seen some significant impact of that. But again, overall water use has remained in line with previous years. Again, we are in a drought, and we just want people to be cognizant of their water use and and please conserve. Please don't water your lawn if you really don't need to. It will come back when the rains come back. You know, just the usual, you know, don't wash your car if you don't have to or use, um, you know, water from your bathtub to wash your car type of thing. You know, I know it's a bit humbug, but we're just asking people. We know that people always see, you know, perceived government as being wasteful. So one of the things we try to do is work with our fellow government agencies. So we've sent letters to people and just ask them to be aware and be supportive, including the military as well. So we're, we're doing our outreach to people right now just to ensure that people are getting the message and can do whatever they can. And then we have resources if they want to tap into them. We have ideas and suggestions. And, and again, it's things like watering the grass, filling swimming pools, stuff like that is what really kind of increases water usage. That was Board of Water Supply spokeswoman Kathleen Pahinui talking to us about the snapshot of our water resources here on Oahu. That wraps it up for today. Tomorrow, we hear about a new pot of money to tap into. It's a way to help Hawaii farmers keep land in agriculture. We'd like to hear from you. What do you think we should do about our rail project? Has the pandemic changed your view? You can call our talkback line, 808-792-8217. You can also email us here at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. You can post your comments on social media, Facebook, The Conversation HPR, or tweet us at HI Conversation. I'm Katherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation.